This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part three of a four-part series on bankruptcy law. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Vanak podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, I'm Clinton Butler, and this is the four-part series on bankruptcy law in Texas. In the first two episodes, I interviewed Dickie Davis and Alan DeBard, and they gave us general overviews of the personal and corporate bankruptcy laws in Texas. Today, we're going to learn about bankruptcy from another perspective. I'm really excited to interview my partner and good friend, Natalie Friend Wilson. And Natalie's going to take us through, in this episode, what, what do you do if you're involved in a transaction or litigation and then in the middle of that transaction or litigation, the other person says, ah, bankruptcy. And so with Natalie today, we're going to discuss what do you, what's the process? You know, what happens to you and your transaction or your case when the other person just says, you know what, King's X, bankruptcy. And so with that, let me introduce my friend and human Red Bull, Natalie Wilson. <laughs> Natalie, good morning. Good morning, Clinton. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, give us a little bit of your education and your your credentials, your experience. Sure. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, and then when it was time for me to go to law school, um, my then boyfriend, now husband, had three-year orders to Hawaii, and I thought, what better place to go to law school? I um, always wondered how the girl from the East Coast ended up as far away as possible from the East Coast and still maintained herself in the United States. I should have guessed it, it's your husband who's yeah, in the military. Yes, tale as old as time following, following a guy. There you um, go. But it worked out. Well, at least that's the case. So I uh, went to law school in Hawaii. We, we ended up staying there for six years. So after law school, Um, I was admitted to the bar in Hawaii. I clerked for a justice of the state Supreme Court. And then um, that clerkship ended in September of 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I entered private practice the week that Lehman Brothers filed for Chapter 11. Which Good is, time to enter the bankruptcy world. Well, that is how I became a bankruptcy lawyer because <laughs> uh, the that is what that was basically the only work that was going on at the time in the legal world. All transactions had stopped. Um, litigation was really um, kind of in flux. 
and firms were not hiring for litigation. And I actually had an environmental law certificate and I had wanted to do <laughs> environmental regulatory enforcement, but the state and county and local governments and federal government were on hiring freezes. And so having no experience with bankruptcy, I never even took debtor creditor rights. <laughs> um, and it was not on the Hawaii bar. I became a bankruptcy lawyer and literally all I knew about it was there is a bankruptcy code. You know, I never actually took oil and gas in law school. Either. <laughs> now, I'm the, now I'm the head of the oil and gas department. So it, it's funny how we get uh, get to where we're at. Well, I had, I had excellent training and then we, um, we moved to Texas um, about a decade ago. Last year was actually my 11th anniversary with the firm. And um, fortunately for me, although I was changing states, bankruptcy is a federal practice. And so I was able to, um, to join the firm, continue getting uh, great on-the-job training. And um, I found that I just, I really loved bankruptcy. I love the variety. I love the ways that the code actually allows you to be really creative. Um, bankruptcy is a court of equity, so you can get away with a lot <laughs> if, if, all, if everybody is in agreement. But, so you can come up with really creative solutions to solve um, financial distress and hopefully keep businesses operating, keep people employed, um, keep services flowing. So it's been really rewarding. Um, a couple of years ago, I became board certified in bankruptcy, so I really, I really caught up on my yeah, lack right. of you, formal you, education. Uh, you started late, but you got there quick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, you mentioned something that I, you know, there are very few areas of law I know less about than bankruptcy, and so um, you know, I've been learning through this process as well. And one thing I've learned in the in the conversations I've had, and that is kind of a common thread between the bankruptcy practice and oil and gas practice is it rewards the creative mind. Uh, it's not a rigid practice. It's not, you know, you do X, then you do Y, then you do Z, and that's it. It's, there are multiple paths that you can take in order to try to solve a problem. Uh, and that's very similar in the oil and gas world. And so that, that has been kind of the, the hook that I've gravitated to that, you know, I've found a lot of similarities between the practice of bankruptcy and my own practice um, is just, you know, there's room to figure this out. There's room to get creative with it and to try to, you know, solve problems in a unique way. And so I, I think both of our practices, um, the, the more creative you can be, the more out of the box you can be, the better you are at this type of law. Yeah, I think that, that flexibility actually surprises a lot of people when they kind of end up in somebody else's bankruptcy. The first reaction right. is really like, oh gosh, bankruptcy, it's code-based, it's it's very statutory-based, and I'm not gonna have the same ability to um, maneuver and strategize, and I think they end up being very surprised at what the bankruptcy code and the bankruptcy rules allow for in that regard. So, you know, Beyond just the creative side of bankruptcy, what else is it about bankruptcy in general that draws you to it? I um, am a like just a quintessential nerd. I love learning about new things and like doing like these weird deep dives into things. 
And you get to do that in bankruptcy mm -hmm. because it spans all industries. And so when you are in a case, you become an expert about some industry or business or financial product that you had no idea existed two weeks before the filing. So we've done cases where we represented a trustee who was running an oil refinery. And that was actually my first case when I came to the firm. And so I had to learn all about oil and gas law, all about refining. Mm -hmm. um, Hawaii does not have oil and gas law because the sovereign owns everything. Right. Um, and their main resource is actually geothermal, so it's completely different. Um, We've done overland dry trucking, which obviously is like, you. once you think about it, like obviously this has to exist because I see all the trucks on 35, right. but you don't really think about it being a business or an industry. Mm -hmm. um, and so I love getting into something to that really, really deep level of something that you'd otherwise never be exposed to. Right. That's right. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is, you know, as a litigator, my least favorite thing in the world, which is, you know, I'm involved in a case, we're hot and heavy, discovery's flying, we're taking depositions, and then all of a sudden somebody yells, hey, King's X, you know, does, does the Michael Scott in the office of, you know, running out of their office and shouting, I declare bankruptcy, <laughs> and, you know, and then it just stops, you know, all the yes. work, everything we've done, all the preparation. You know, I get a letter from a federal bankruptcy court that I've never heard of before telling me, oh, yeah, all that stayed. Yep. So take me from the bankruptcy perspective, you know, take me through, you, you've been on the other side of the phone call when I've yeah. called and said, you know, what the hell is this? Yep. And um, so from your perspective, you know, what happens in the middle of a transaction or particularly in litigation when one side says, you know what, I'm out, bankruptcy? Right. So um, I'll just address a, a transaction because it's a little bit um, faster and easier. Um, if you're in the middle of negotiating a transaction, you have to stop. And for you have to call, call a bankruptcy specialist and see, are we going to need approval from the bankruptcy court to enter into this agreement? That's really, the first question is, do we want to do business with somebody who's right. going, I mean, it may just be the, the bankruptcy filing says, <laughs> That's we're not going to do we business. That's oftentimes what we refer to as a red flag. Yes. Um, and you know, there, are, um, there are certain contracts that the code requires the debtor to get approval for. Uh, if they're going to enter them during bankruptcy. And so that's that's the second question. If you are still interested in entering the contract, are you gonna have to get approval and are you gonna be able to get approval? Are other parties going to object? Um, litigation is much more complicated. And as you said, you, that call is, or that notice of filing is a litigator's worst nightmare. Those calls are like my Christmas. I love it when litigation goes into bankruptcy. Uh, yeah. But as you noted, everything stops. It's yeah. called, under the bankruptcy code, it is called the automatic stay. And it stops all proceedings against a debtor, all attempts to collect, because everything goes into the bankruptcy court for what is hopefully an orderly administration. So that also applies on the other, like if someone's a plaintiff and they go into bankruptcy, 
Does that stop their case as a plaintiff? Not necessarily. Okay. If it is, if there are counterclaims, yes, okay. because it's not fair to let the plaintiff go forward with right. claims and not let the defendant go forward with um, uh, with their counterclaims. So, for you <laughs> litigators out there, creative solution if you want to stop this litigation is file a counterclaim, <laughs> right? Right. There are a few things that are accepted from this day. A dissolution of marriage is not accepted. Criminal cases are not accepted. But for most people, the general rule is that your litigation has probably stayed. And you probably you might even want to ask a bankruptcy specialist, like, do I fall into any exceptions mm -hmm. where we can go forward? The next question is, what do you want to do? Because there are a couple of options. Either party, either the debtor or the um, opposing party in the litigation can remove the litigation to the bankruptcy court. And there are some advantages to that. Um, the bankruptcy courts basically follow the federal rules of civil procedure, which is a plus in my book for a lot of state court litigators. That <laughs> is a, a minus. minus in mine. <laughs> so yeah, no, we, uh, for those of us who find ourselves oftentimes in state district court, the, the federal rules are a touch onerous for us. Uh, you know, we, we like kind of the fast-paced, loosey-goosey world of state court. And, you know, federal judges really take those rules seriously. Yes. And, uh, you know, that, that can be a little, a little bit um, less fun let's say, for those of us who practice litigation. For those of us who like to enforce those rules, we, we, we prefer not being in the wild, wild west. That, that is true. Um, and oftentimes when I find myself in federal court, the first call I make is to Natalie to say, hey, make sure that, you know, I don't get a malpractice claim. Yeah, let, let's keep this on the straight and narrow. It's, but, a, it's a real litmus test for litigators, I think, of where you prefer to be. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it uh, you know, it's, I think it's just like we're all creatures of habit and whatever we do the most of is what we're most comfortable with. Yeah. And, you know, uh, for those of us who are oftentimes in state court, it's just it's just what we've gotten yeah. used to. But, uh, you know, like all things, you've got to be prepared for whatever circumstances bring in front of you. And, you know, sometimes that means you're going to fed court. Yeah. Um, so either party can remove it to bankruptcy court. And there are, beyond the use of the federal rules, there are some... Um, Advantages and disadvantages, things on timelines to consider. Um, adversary proceedings tend to move quite quickly through the bankruptcy court. Um, so that may be your preference. Um, one thing to always consider is whether there's been a jury demand in the underlying case. Bankruptcy courts have very limited jurisdiction to conduct jury trials, and they really don't do it frequently. When would it? I've never, I don't know if I've ever even heard of a bankruptcy court doing a jury trial. In what circumstances would a jury trial, you know, let's say that I've got my dispute in state or federal court. We do the, the stay is issued and do both parties have to agree to remand it to a, or remove it to federal bankruptcy court in order for that to happen? No, only one party can remove it and then it's up to the other party whether they want to uh, object, uh, ask for a remand, move right. for remand. And there's a limited period of time to do that. Okay. Um, one of the biggest factors on remand is whether it should be remanded is whether there's a jury been demanded. Because what happens most frequently, if there is a jury demand and it stays in bankruptcy court, 
is that the bankruptcy court does all the pretrial, very similar to how a magistrate judge does, but then you go up to federal district court for your jury trial, and in a very busy uh, district with a heavy criminal case load that takes priority, getting a civil jury trial in federal court, in federal court is a that is a difficult task. That is a daunting yeah. problem. You are going to wait a while. Yep. Um, the other thing is, so if neither party removes it, the litigation stays in the court where it was, and um, the typically the um, plaintiff will can move to lift the automatic stay to allow that that trial to proceed in the state court usually where it is where it is, but in the court where it started. And that's a multi-factor test. Um, and a lot of times, one of the, again, the driving factor is that a jury has been demanded. And if the state court has put a lot of work into the case already, so if they've heard a lot of argument, if it's, if uh, dispositive motions, motions for summary judgment have been tried, have been filed already down there, if you were literally on the eve of trial and ready to go and um, that can be a um, a driving factor because uh, you're going to get a resolution much faster mm -hmm. factors that may weigh against lifting the automatic stay is if somehow the um, resolution of that case is going to mess up the bankruptcy process which is a technical term um, <laughs> Very terminal. <laughs> Such that the litigation either needs to remain stayed or is better addressed in the bankruptcy court, that would be a reason uh, to deny it. A lot of um, times a way to get the stay lifted is for the plaintiff to agree to limit their recovery to insurance proceeds because those are not an estate asset. Right. In other words, that you know, the the proceeds from that the insurance company would pay out that's not in the bankruptcy. Right, because they're not generally available to distribute to all the creditors. Right. You, so. you don't generally have like a secured claim on insurance proceeds. Correct. Right. Right. Not before your judgment. So that is that is a, um, a strategy decision that needs to be made. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my kind of a overall question is how other than just, you know, limiting it to like insurance proceeds or perhaps maybe collateral that you've already got a secured claim on, you know, how would a potential jury trial in state court not screw up a bankruptcy plan? Because, you know, if I get a big judgment against somebody, then suddenly, you know, there's now a, and we're going to talk about secured creditors in a later episode, but now suddenly there's somebody with a judgment lien, right? Right. Well, and so the, when it gets remanded or when it, when the state gets lifted and the litigation goes through in state court, you liquidate your claim, meaning you get the number of what your claim is, but you can't pursue collection through the state court. You still have to go back to the bankruptcy court to collect. So it can upset the plan process if it's sudden, if this huge claim mm -hmm. suddenly makes the makes an appearance, yes. you know, just <laughs> like, like, you know, we're doing a bankruptcy plan here. We're, we're saying, you know, here's how we're going to distribute these assets. And then suddenly somebody drops, you know, a $3 million secured claim yeah. on the table. Right. I right. Mean, that's that, it. that could, um, you know, a lot of times where, where individual litigation would really interfere with, um, 
the actual kind of underlying bankruptcy process would be something like if there's a decision about who owns a claim. So if there's if there is a dispute about what could potentially be an estate asset. So if you're in a declaratory judgment in an oil and gas and you, mm -hmm. you're asking a court to um, to interpret a a lease or other conveyance document and that's going to affect what assets the debtor owns because that decision says okay debtor you own this lease or you own these minerals or you don't that might be one that um, needs to stay in the bankruptcy court because it could really affect the administration if there's um, um, disputes that affect maybe the the management and who's in charge and who gets to make decisions. So like okay. issues relating to like title to real property or something, those generally need to be decided in the bankruptcy court. Is that right? It's, it's a factor that the court would consider. And okay. it, it would be a factor um, in favor of remaining in bankruptcy court because the bankruptcy court gets primary jurisdiction and almost exclusive jurisdiction over assets of the estate. And determining whether something is an asset of the estate is a primary function right. of the bankruptcy court. Right. And so, so like would, if we're like in a deed interpretation suit and you're claiming that, you know, look, I own these royalties uh, and me as just an outside third party not involved in the bankruptcy, I think, no, I own them. That's something the bankruptcy court is going to generally have to hear because they got to determine if is that an asset that's subject to bankruptcy or not. Right. Right, and determining, and depending on how important that asset would be to the bankruptcy court. I mean, it's it, it's all balancing. It's all equity. You know, you guys uh, want to come and say, "What is the court going to do?" And we're like, "Well, they're going to weigh." No, there is no red bright line. They're going to weigh some factors and yeah. <laughs> do what they think is right for the estate and the creditors. Um, you know, some other, a little further down the line. You know, you have to think about what's going to happen in a bankruptcy. Um, you're going to have to file a proof of claim, which mm -hmm. is a really easy, straightforward process, but that is the only way to preserve what you think you are owed. Um, if, you're, if you're in a contract dispute and your contract calls for mediation or arbitration, you can move to compel either of those things from the bankruptcy court to resolve the amount of your dispute. Again, you won't be able to do collection, right? but you come back to the bankruptcy court for collection, but you can compel um, alternative dispute resolution. So if you and I have a contract that's a, you know, like a construction contract or something, and any dispute relating to this contract, the parties agree will be done through AAA arbitration. Mm -hmm. uh, even though you've, you know, as a party to this contract, you've declared bankruptcy, the stay has been issued on any uh, suit that we've got. You know, well, let me ask you this. If we're already in arbitration, you know, if we're in the middle of arbitration, mm -hmm. Would an arbitration get stayed? Yes. Okay. And then you just go to the bankruptcy court and say, hey, look, you know, we've we've got an arbitration clause in here. Lift the stay as to this arbitration claim? Yep. It would be just like if it was in state court in litigation. Okay. Same same process. And, and the court would, bankruptcy court would then do a balancing test to determine whether or not yeah. to uh, allow the arbitration to continue. Yeah. And it's a very similar balancing test. The federal policy favors alternative dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. So there is already a strong preference in favor of lifting the stay to allow arbitration to go forward. Uh, but again, the the con the mitigating factor that the court will consider usually is what impact 
will this have on the bankruptcy process? Is it going is it going to cause a problem with me administering this bankruptcy estate um, such that it can't go forward? I mean, in my experience, arbitration, because of that strong preference in the pol in federal policy, um, there it almost always is allowed to go forward to liquidate the claim and determine the amounts of the obligations. Um, so, you know, other than, so we got, you know, alternative dispute resolution in the form of either mediation or arbitration. You know, what other issues might a bankruptcy court encounter on a case that has been, you know, stopped in the middle of the case and, you know, has gone to bankruptcy? So the, the big part is at some point, the debtor is going to have to file a plan of reorganization if we're in mm -hmm. Chapter 11. And even in a Chapter 7, the court or the court has to know how much each creditor is going to, is owed and how much is going to get paid. So at some point, that claim will have to be resolved. So there's, you file your proof of claim, there's a whole claim objection process that can happen. The court can estimate claims. The bankruptcy court can estimate a claim for voting purposes on a plan of reorganization, even if it's going to be resolved in arbitration or in Even um, if it's unresolved court. at that time. So I mean, Correct. the bankruptcy court, and is that what they do in, in the event that there's an unresolved claim? Does the court hold some sort of hearing or some sort of, you know, have motions in order to determine what the estimated value of this claim is in order to try to wedge that into the bankruptcy plan? That is exactly right. It is a contested evidentiary hearing. The parties could agree, but yeah. there is a process for a contested evidentiary hearing. Just either, like a little mini trial or something? It doesn't have to actually be a mini trial. I mean, it yeah. can be even shorter than okay. that. It could be like the length of a, you know, one or two hour hearing. Just some affidavits and um, a couple pieces of evidence. A little bit of evidence, yep. right, a little bit of argument. Um, and you know the and that estimation is not binding on anybody. You can't go back to your state court or your arbitrator and say, "Well, the bankruptcy court says <laughs> they only get a hundred thousand um, dollars." But so it is the way that um, votes are calculated on the plan are number of creditors, but also the percentage of claims, the mm -hmm. percentage of value claims. So you kind of have to know that for certain claims, right? Um, and this is, you know, early on, a bankruptcy specialist can help you kind of decide all, on all of these paths strategically what you want to do by forecasting how this debtor is going to exit bankruptcy. And is it even worth? Yeah, uh, that's always the question, money. you know, particularly in litigation is, you know, okay, you got all this great liability, but is there a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow or not? You know, I mean, you might have the greatest case in the world, but if if somebody's in bankruptcy, I mean, you know, yeah. are you already too late to the party? You and that is what the bankruptcy specialist can help you look for because right. we can tell early on from some of the early filings and some of the early hearings, we can forecast, we can predict, we can't guarantee that you know it looks like. Unsecured creditors are going to get pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just should just enter an agreed judgment for a fraction of 
your... And so tell, tell the audience, what sort of factors would a bankruptcy specialist be looking at to say, you know, hey, you know, cut your losses and let's get out of here for as most, much as we can? Or, you know, no, we need, you know, go get yours. You know, what are, what are you looking for? One of the biggest is how many unsecured or uncollateralized assets do they have? Mm-hmm. Are all of their assets leaned up and underwater? Are the, you know, where the secured creditors are going to take them and run. And um, so basically, and we're going to get much more into secured creditors in a later episode, but basically, if there are people who've already got, you know, what we call priority over certain assets, and there's just not many assets out there that don't have somebody that's already got a lien attached to them, that'd be something you'd look at and say, look, you know, there's just not much there there. Right. Is that right? Right. And we can look at their their cash flow for the last couple of years. Um, has this been a steady decline or was there some kind of sentinel event mm-hmm. that, uh, that caused the bankruptcy? Um, is this going to be a sale of the debtor as a going concern? So, or? so tell me, you know, of those two options that you just mentioned, you know, there's there's just kind of the slow and steady, you know, down the hill walk, or there's just the drop off the cliff. Um, Of those two events, which one of those makes you think that, you know, we can can continue and maybe we can get something here or we need to cut our losses? The drop off event is typically less concerning depending on what it is, because it is a singular event that caused a disruption to their normal business. If this has been... 2008 crash, something like that? The 2008 crash, the pandemic caused uh, a lot of it. It could be one large judgment Mm -hmm. um, or or it could be a... um, If the Sentinel event, there was something like a regulatory change um, for healthcare providers. If it is a change in the way that Medicare and Medicaid reimburses, that's... It may cause a quick drop, but yeah. it's not going to be something that they can rebound from. Okay. If it's if it's an isolated event that they can recover from, and that is a good indicator that after they exit bankruptcy, they will continue operating as they have in the past. If they've been on a kind of steady decline, that is more worrisome because that business is not as valuable to a potential purchaser. Mm-hmm. And if they can't find a purchaser, and they're going to do a true reorganization and just continue operating, it doesn't give me a lot of faith that their going forward operations this are going a, to generate revenue This is a pay. business that's crawling into the grave. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, why do you want to keep chasing after that? Right. So we'll, gotcha. we'll look at that. I mean, even... Because that, that was a surprising answer to me. I, <laughs> you know, just off the top of your head, you think, okay, one that just drops off a cliff, you're... You're, you're not going to come after that. But what you're saying is, look, if somebody, you know, takes on one bad event, that's just one yeah. bad event. It's not a history of decline. Right. I mean, it's like the difference between a broken leg and congestive heart failure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what other factors are you looking at? The other thing that we would look at to consider whether it's worth investing in pursuing the litigation is whether, you, whether this claim could be non-dischargeable. So Tell us what non-dischargeable means. Normally, in a bankruptcy, the biggest benefit to the debtor is that they pay a certain amount of their creditor or a certain amount to their creditors, and all the pre-petition claims are wiped out 
to zero. They get a clean slate going forward. That's called the discharge. Starting fresh, starting anew. Right, exactly, gotcha. the clean start. Um, there are provisions, however, that can make a debt non-dischargeable, which means it survives the bankruptcy and the creditor can continue collecting or continue what, efforts to collect. What sort of claims would we be looking at? In, that in the business context, you're often looking at claims that accrued because of fraud, mm -hmm. breach of fiduciary duty. And we often throw in uh, willful and malicious injury, although that's actually much harder to prove and, right. and much less common um, in a business context, fraud or breach of fiduciary duty are um, much more likely to uh, to prevail. And um, those have similar but distinct uh, elements under the bankruptcy code that are slightly different from how you would plead it in state court. Just to make it fun, just so you can have another trial. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a separate lawsuit and a full trial, but if your potential damages judgment is large enough, it can be well worth it. If you have a $5 million fraud claim or a $10 million breach of fiduciary duty claim, it can be well worth it to make sure that you can continue collecting on that and not just abandoning it. Gotcha. So those are all the, you know, those are the chess moves that uh, that I'm starting to think about the moment I get that call of <laughs> right, like you know. this jerk filed for bankruptcy on me. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> so other than that, you know, what what other you know issues are we looking at? Or um, you know, you you've said you know the discharge as a as a creditor. Do I have the ability to you know try to keep that discharge from happening? Can I object to it? And yep. are just the only ways that I can object to it based upon what you just told me? Fraud, malicious and intentional act, things the, like that. Those are the, those are the biggest, there are, there are some like child support and, mm -hmm. and um, um, what is it? So we don't call it alimony. Uh. Spousal maintenance? No, it, it has a special. Okay. It's, Debts that are pursuant to a qualified domestic relations order. There you go. Uh, those, some of those are automatically non-dischargeable. But in, right. in the business bankruptcy contest, your own context, you're almost always looking at fraud or breach of fiduciary duty. Those are um, the, the most likely. Now, one thing we didn't talk about was trying to get the case dismissed. That is usually, this, the first question is, can I get this case dismissed so that there is no automatic stay. Right. And um, when you talk about the case, you're talking about the bankruptcy the case. The bankruptcy case. Okay. So Correct. how you know, so I'm in the middle of litigation with somebody, that person files for bankruptcy. How do I go about trying to get their bankruptcy dismissed? The most common tactic is to try to dismiss it as a bad faith filing. Okay. And because that was going to be my question. <laughs> you know, before you, you brought up that topic, I was like, like you know, I'm in, I'm in litigation with this jerk. They're jerks. They're always jerks. Have they, you know, is there any instance in which you've come across people, you know, going, you know what, a really good way to stop me getting my butt kicked would be to just file bankruptcy, you know? 
what is a bad faith filing? How do you determine it? What's the consequence? Yeah. Take us through it. I mean, when you're the litigator on the other side, everything feels like a bad faith filing. Every single thing as they've it. ever filed against me in any case is <laughs> automatically a bad faith filing. As, There's as, no doubt about it. Especially when it is on the literal eve of trial. It feels very personal. Um, a, the hallmarks of a bad faith filing are a debtor that is not actually insolvent. So a debtor who is not in arrears on any of its um, obligations, a debtor who has sufficient cash flow, to, cash flow to meet its ongoing obligations, and a debtor who doesn't have significant amounts of litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the debtor is not really insolvent and the only litigation they are involved with is the, you know, your litigation, quote unquote, um, that can signal that this was really just a strategic move. They don't need to reorganize, um, but that happens very rarely. Because, I mean, businesses aren't, you know, nobody likes being in a lawsuit, but probably businesses like declaring bankruptcy less, right? Yes, that that is correct. Um, And so, and often what you'll find is if, the, if the debtor has been sued by one person, they've probably messed up their business dealings with other people and are involved in multiple, uh, litiga- or multiple litigation cases going on at the same time. Often also like regulatory investigations get thrown in mm-hmm. uh, if a business is struggling and having problems. So when, and it is a valid reason to file for bankruptcy if you are, if the debtor is involved in multiple litigation cases and needs kind of basically needs a breather and needs to bring it all into one place because they can't fight in six different counties they can't you know they can't afford the legal fees to fight in six different counties and there aren't enough assets to satisfy all those judgments if all those plaintiffs prevail and so it is difficult to get a case dismissed for bad faith filing and the kind of uh, silver lining that I like to give people when I tell them I don't think I can get it dismissed is that bankruptcy requires so much transparency on the part of the debtor that they are basically doing your post-judgment discovery right. for you. Yeah, they're, they're letting you know what assets you've got to be able to attach a judgment to in the event that you get one. Yes. Right. So tell us... Um, Tell us an antidote, a, a unique story, uh, something on a high level that you know certainly wouldn't get us in trouble for attorney-client <laughs> stuff, but something on you know a little a little antidote or story about you know an instance in which you know you were involved in a uh, a litigation that you know in the middle of it somebody said you know what bankruptcy. So we actually uh, got to represent some of the creditors of Brian Alfaro. Okay. when bankruptcy was filed. Okay. We, they were in the middle of state court litigation. Um, Brian Alfaro was, has been convicted of fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can say that with, tell, without tell an allegation. Brian he, was, Alfaro. he was a promoter, an oil and gas promoter, I mm-hmm. guess is the best way to put it, and generated millions of dollars of investment in Wells uh, appeared to be very successful and very wealthy. 
And this group of investors had filed a fraud case alleging that he had misrepresented in his promotion materials, in his solicitation materials, uh, the, the value of these wells and their ability to produce. In the middle of that case, he filed for bankruptcy and, and we got hired just to, to help shepherd the state court lawyers who are very capable and very smart, just make sure that they were doing all the bankruptcy stuff right. And they eventually did prevail and they were able to recover. Uh, he had quite a few non-exempt assets. Now, was that a bad faith bankruptcy filing that it, he made? It was not a bad faith filing because he was legitimately insolvent and right. had no way to satisfy these claims. I believe later on there were some issues of non-disclosure. I believe the receiver who was eventually appointed or the trustee in the case who was eventually appointed, there was like a car collection, there was a, uh, there was a watch collection. The federal marshals raided his home to recover these assets. We fortunately don't have to interact too often with the criminal justice system, <laughs> but it is always a little interesting and surreal to be reading in the local newspaper about a case that you have been tangentially involved in. So, Absolutely. So that was, I feel bad saying it was fun because Interesting. It was it was interesting. It was stimulating. Um, it was exciting. It was the investors got about as good as they could get in the situation. Sometimes they get very interesting. I am obsessed with the bankruptcies involving the Real Housewives. <laughs> <laughs> so it felt very it felt very much uh, on that scale for me. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Well, I think I think you know the, the takeaway. Uh, from this episode is that, you know, as an attorney uh, who does, you know, litigation and stuff, um, if, a, if an opposing party files for bankruptcy, you need to make a very quick call to a bankruptcy specialist because things are going to get complicated and they're going to get out of your zone of expertise real quick, right? Yes. And so, Definitely. you know, if, if you're involved in litigation, and the other side goes into bankruptcy, you know, you need to get somebody like Natalie on board as quickly as possible because as you discussed, there's a lot of different avenues. There's a lot of different ways that this could be worked out. You know, it may be that, look, this is just a, this is a bad, you know, this is sunk cost here. Right. You know, you're just gonna, you're gonna continue losing money if you keep coming after this. Or there may be some creative form or fashion that you can try to collect, you know, as much, of, as many pennies on the dollar as you possibly can right. Uh, given the status of your opponent. Is that right? I think so. And I think, you know, bankruptcy lawyers are, are very practical and we're, we're also used to dipping in and out of a case. We are perfectly comfortable saying, yeah, let's get the stay lifted. I will do that for you. And then in six weeks, I'm yep. out. That's it for you. So you don't have to be worried about that, that we're invested too heavily in staying in bankruptcy court. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you very much for the, uh, the stimulating conversation. Uh, we certainly do appreciate it. Uh, this is Clinton Butler, and I want to thank everyone for joining us today on the Bankruptcy Law Pet Podcast. On our next episode, we'll be discussing secured creditors. Uh, I'll be joined by two of our very experienced bankruptcy attorneys, David Gregg and Jim Hoffman, and they'll be able to share some of their knowledge about being both a creditor and a debtor in a bankruptcy and what it means to be a secured creditor in that process. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on the Langley Benack podcast on bankruptcy law in Texas. Thank you and we'll see you next time.
Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.